Here we are. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast. Well, thanks. Oh, good to be here? You're talking to them, yeah. This is where we are attempting to recover from bad ideas about God and Christianity and recover what is good and true and beautiful about the gospel and the Christian life. And today we want to dive into uh, a series, uh, Unbelievable, Addressing Obstacles to Faith. And episode number one is The Big Problems with the Big Book. Uh, so we were talking about the Bible. And we're talking about the issues that are that, that arise whenever the Bible is the Word of God. Yeah. Well, whether it's uh, the basis of the Christian religion, you know, I, I think that in a modern context, and, and I guess as I look back over my life, I think, why didn't we always have problems with some of this stuff? You know, I'm, I'm not so bewildered or mystified by... The problems that people are currently having but you know as i look back and i think well you know why did why didn't we always think this seems kind of unscientific <laughs> <laughs> you know and I, and I think that all of us um you know science is, uh, has won the day if there if there has been a war between science and religion i, I think we need to go ahead and call it you know um at least I, in the west in the modern yeah, world right right and and since we're we're kind of dominant and setting the tone and, you know, I don't think anybody's wishing we could trade our physicians in for shamans or stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I don't think anybody who is using a shaman is like not wishing they had access to modern medicine, you Mm -hmm. know? And so it, it seems that modernist worldview is, is vindicated in terms of just, you know, curing diseases, improving healthcare, you know, the idea that there are germs out there, that it's not an angry spirit or something that's making us sick is, uh, has won the day in, in that regard. And um, so, you know, as we read the Bible and we think, what place does this have in our, in our lives? And if, if Christianity is based on the Bible, why, why would we be Christians? So... Seems, seems fraught with a lot of issues. Now, why can't a person just know intuitively that the Bible is uh, an ancient book that is given to us to answer questions that science can't answer? That seems obvious to me after having thought about it. Yeah. Uh, but it's not obvious, is it? Yeah, maybe, maybe a lot of it has to do with our expectations. Uh, you know, if, if we think that the Bible is, a, um, is an inspired work that... You know, do, how do we how do we conceive of a God who is medieval during the medieval period? <laughs> you know, who's archaic? Uh, you know, is is God Himself um, evolving socially? Had, did He used to be more sexist than He is now? You know, He um, He's learned some. Maybe He's like a recovering racist or you know mm-hmm. whatever. But He's gotten educated. I mean. You know, when when we read things in the Bible that are sexist or, or violent or regressive, um, when, and it, you know, things, something that's kind of troubled me is things like when we read in Genesis 1 and he talks about that God's going to put a vault in the sky, a dome, mm-hmm. that's going to separate the waters from the waters. It seems to speak of a, of a mindset that says, well, rain is falling from an ocean above the sky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an ancient cosmology. Right. How come a person can't just understand that this, these, these are ancient people uh, who had naturally had an ancient cosmology and not a modern scientific one, and uh, 
just grant them their the cosmology they had at that time and set that aside as as a problem and instead look for what it, wisdom there is in the text why well, is it a problem i think there are people who do that the, the problem with it is is that christianity claims to be a historical faith uh, it claims to be the bible claims to be the story of god's working with people it claims to be um wisdom from god i mean there's sections in the bible where god is speaking in first person um you know if if it's supposedly inspired um then that presumes an insight beyond culture uh beyond history and the limitations of scientific awareness of the people of the day and so if if that's the claim of the of the text then you know how can that be i mean certainly i think most people would grant that the people who wrote the Bible were ancient. Nobody's going to doubt that. And, and some people might even grant that there's wisdom to be found in the Bible. Um, but I think most people would say that on the whole, if we were to go back, let's say, and live by the Torah, that if we could find a society around the world that was living strictly by the prescriptions in the Law of Moses, nobody would want to be a part of that society. Uh, it would be very bloody. Um, it would be sexist, um, be violent in, uh, you know, interpersonally, that the laws would be um, really draconian. And um, so, you know, what we see, say, in ISIS and other things, and we, we critique, we don't critique it on the basis of the Torah. We critique it on the basis of a rationalist, modernist ethic. And, and, and I think that people who are who are critics of the Bible, modernists, rationalists, naturalists, you know, any ist you want to put on there, um, I, I think that they have a very legitimate critique when they say Christians are not using a biblical ethic, that they are using a rationalist, modernist ethic and baptizing it, you know, and, and I, because, you know, you think, look at things like the UN statement on human rights and stuff like that, a lot of that thinking is coming, say, from John Locke and, and his successors, people who are beginning with this notion that there is a inherent dignity in the human being and that that should be maintained. And out of that flows a lot of the Western liberal values that we assume today, but you could not overlay those onto, say, a, you know, first century Jewish yeah. milieu. Yeah. yeah um, this as I'm listening to listening to y'all talk about this, I'm thinking through the things that you know I was actively trained, uh, <laughs> you know through through Bible college and just uh, you know church traditions growing up. And I think about two words. Uh, the first one we've already mentioned about the biblical text or the Bible is infallible. Yeah, which means without any fallacy or falsehood, right? And the other the other one that we uh, you know, put put with that was inerrant, you know, without error are mistakes. And so um, growing up in the church and then, you know, getting into the ministry and going through the, you know, Bible training, ministry training, that those were the, the, the two terms that were always uh, put forth, that the Bible is infallible and it's inerrant. Uh, scripture is infallible, it's inerrant. It's without falsehood and it's without error. And so... Um, you know, we're having these conflicts with that. And we said, well, is it really without error? <laughs> because I see a lot of contradictions here, you know, or 
And uh, how, how literally is it without air? Because when I read Genesis, like your example about the dome, having an ocean in the sky that's bringing forth rain, you know, is, is that an error? You know, because it's not literally that way, because science, you know, shows that it's not literally that way, you know, and so that there's so, so much gray area that at a certain point, when people start looking at it critically, especially in a modern age, I think we all intuitively know that, well, some of this doesn't add up, and there, there has to be another way to, I think, look at this. So um, let's dig a little bit more into that. You know, what, what does that mean for us to say, is it infallible? Is it inerrant? Is that really what, what we're saying? Or is that something we've added on top of uh, what the Bible says about itself? Yeah. Well, and, and I, I think most of us just would intuitively think that if a book claims to be inspired by God, and, you know, that it wouldn't have errors. I mean, that's why those doctrines arise. Um, and so it's, it's difficult for us to get our minds around this notion that, um, you know, that, that, that the biblical writers didn't have a special insight that God, you know, if God is moving their pen along or dictating to them what he wants them to say, um, then how could they possibly have a wrong notion? You know, how could they possibly have a... Um, archaic and outdated and erroneous cosmology, you know, why, why wouldn't we find evidence of, you know, really erudite, <laughs> you know, uh, scientific insight in the Bible, not just maybe it's just happenstance, you know, when we say, well, the Bible's not written to be a scientific book, but why wouldn't we find it just in the matter, as a matter of course, as, as the set of assumptions upon which these narratives are being told, you know, if you and I were to tell a story about the beginnings of the universe, you know, we would have to at least begin with this notion of, uh, of, of a heliocentric, you know, solar system and all of that. We'd have to at least begin with that. So even while we may not write a, a story that was intended to inform people scientifically, we'd at least be coming from that context or unless we were ignorant, you know. So then what do we say about things like Genesis 1 or others where it seems, you know, um, Joshua and the, and the sun standing still in the sky? Well, it's assuming that the, the sun is moving in the sky, you know, um, and so it will stand still. And, and um, so, you know, I think people struggle with that and we can't certainly can't blame them. I, and and then there's the other concern that, you know, if if there's a worldview out there that is predicated on something scientifically archaic or regressive doesn't that mean that we're actually producing a class of people in our society who are anti-intellectual um and that's certainly what we're seeing now you know with a lot of the conspiracy theories a lot of people even going backward to a, a more ancient cosmology believing in flat earth and you know that the 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 sky is a dome after all and you know and all of that that we're just going to go back to a very literal understanding of some of these texts and say well it's all been a conspiracy and uh, you know god was right in the first place but that doesn't do a lot for us in terms of scientific advancement curing of diseases improvement of the human condition you know it really kind of makes religious faith uh, a threat if we have to believe in the inspiration of a book that has a non-scientific worldview yeah doesn't that you know, I think that people have a good, you know, legitimate reason for alarm if that's the way Christians view their Bible. Yeah. So, um, and I, 
and I think that is a valid assumption that most people even that have come up within the church do think that that's how we're supposed to view the Bible. Yeah. So, uh, or that that's the nature of inspiration. Like that's what believing that the Bible yeah, is like God, requires God, of us. Yeah. God was whispering in the ear of, of every author that, you know, contributed to the Bible. And so, um, and so, yeah, I, I, I look at, you know, especially the times we're in now, uh, more and more people are, disenfranchised and having trouble identifying with you know what they thought was you know their faith christianity the church because of some of these things that don't seem to quite add up anymore Mm -hmm. um just based on the the questions that are being asked so where is that disconnect between what does it mean to be a christian and what we we believe about the bible and its role in the christian faith You know, as we address this, I I think that there are ways that we can address it that are not fair. Um, And so, for instance, and I I think if we're sensitive to the people who who have these concerns that um, we can't just simply move the goalpost. You know, we can't just be like, oh, what? You know, we've always thought, you know, that the... The, the Bible has always talked about a, a heliocentric solar system and, you know, what do you, what do you mean? You, you obviously just misunderstood it or, you know, or we, or we go back and we say things like, um, well, uh, it's, it's contextual and, you know, that, uh, that God was writing to ancients and so he was using an ancient mindset. Um, I mean, doesn't that suggest that God uh, prefers ignorance? You know, that he's retaining ignorance in a people. Um, so some of the answers that we we come up with, I, I don't think are entirely fair. So that's kind of, you know, uh, that's kind of a, a concern that I have. Is, is I, I think we would do Christianity a disservice if we address these things. Say, you know, and, and I would just be honest. It's like, look, I'm motivated to believe. Uh, I, I'm not entirely unbiased. I, I don't think anybody's unbiased. And so, but at the same time, I, I think the only safe thing to do is to say, okay, I'm biased. <laughs> you know, now, ha, you know, how do I find my own bias and how do I try to then move out of my perspective and say, what, 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 what does the, what do the critics say and what are their concerns? And I, and I think one of the concerns is that we, that the Christians move the goalpost every time science discovers something. Mm-hmm. That we reinterpret the faith, um, and either redact it entirely or, or whatever, and and that just that doesn't seem fair either. Um, not not only is it not fair to those people, but you know, and the, and the critiques, but it's also not fair to um, Christian faith because it makes it such just an amorphous kind of an ad hoc. It's what we say it is, you know. It's like again, almost. Almost every Christian, if you were to grab a random Christian, subscribes to a rationalist, light, enlightenment, Western liberal ethic. Yeah, but I, I think there would be um, people on the conservative end of the spectrum that would balk at that, even though that may be an underlying bias that you know most you know American evangelicals um, may actually have. Um, yeah, I, I think. Uh, you know, a lot of the church still believes in, and feels like they need to hold on to this this view of the Bible as being this special scriptural text that 
at a certain point we can't question it or, or you know uh, critique it too much or you know the whole house of cards is going to fall apart yeah you know and so it, it feels like for some of those people that um that are leaving that in in, in kind of um having a, this identity crisis that if i pull out you know, my you know preconceived uh you know, worldview of what the uh, the Bible is about, that, yeah, this my whole faith is going to fall apart. And so um, it seems like we have to address that at a certain point. What What is it our, that we're holding on to here? Because yeah, you're right. If if Christianity is, is just, oh, well, we, we, you know, we discovered these new scientific facts, uh, and, and now we're just going to throw out chunks of the Bible and say, well, that wasn't really relevant. You know, mm-hmm. it, it becomes, uh, you know, becomes a very... Uh, kind of amorphous thing. So talk yeah. about that a little bit. Well, and then we become the arbiters. Honest, you know, uh, authority transfers from a tradition and, um, you know, some sort of objective source of, of insight to us, you know, to to more of, of a democratized approach. So why bother with it at all? You know, if we're if we're just going to if if we can arbitrarily decide which parts of the Bible are um, inspired and which aren't at this point, you know, based on scientific discoveries and stuff. If if um, you know, if we have like Thomas Jefferson attempted to do, you know, we take our scissors or whatever and we just cut out the parts that um, just don't seem to jive for us, and and we keep the parts that we like. I mean, at at some point, we just say, look, we don't believe it, and you know, we just like it. Um, and that doesn't seem to be an honest approach to life or religion. Do you think it's a dishonest approach to say that um, we, we, uh, we don't believe that it was inspired for the purpose, say in the case of Genesis 1 and 2, of uh, telling us science? or no. conceivably even history, maybe no. it was inspired for a different purpose. No. Do you think that's a sidestepping of the issue? Well, yes. Okay. Yes, it absolutely is. Because, uh, like I was saying, just because just saying it wasn't inspired to teach us science doesn't excuse the fact that it's scientifically wrong. Um, you know, I mean, if somebody, if even just, say, a fifth grader today were to write the Bible, they wouldn't write it like it's written because they have an enlightened, you know, they have a worldview that's scientific. So and you're saying the problem the problem there is that it's God's word and it's right. scientifically wrong. Right. Yeah. Otherwise it wouldn't be a problem. Right. I mean if it's if it's the voice of God speaking to us and God doesn't know that the sun goes I mean the earth goes around the sun, that's a problem. You know? Why didn't God correct his people? <laughs> right, right. Or, or yeah, or even if he's using somebody who doesn't understand it, you know, um, then then we have to we have to try to ding into it. I I, I guess, you know, Whatever our answers are, however we deal with this, I, I think one of the major um, ways that we've done a disservice, and I, when I say we, I guess I mean people in ministry, so that's the three of us and thousands of other people, um, is to kind of do this ad hominem argument. You know, we'll, we'll go at people who critique the Bible. Maybe we'll, we'll talk about how they're being, they don't want to, live by its dictates and so they're trying to undermine it or we will try to invalidate those arguments in some way um, when they're just say there's there's a an inconsistency when there's something that um, maybe this text records 
this number of people involved in this battle and this text, which is clearly um, speaking of the same events, records a different number, mm-hmm. you know, or a different set of events, or you know, and, and that's even true in the Gospels, where you know, in one in one Gospel, the, the centurion comes personally to Jesus and asks him to, to heal his servant, and then in another Gospel, it's just very, very uh, meticulously and you know stated that. It wasn't that man who came to Jesus. It was the Jewish elders and the leaders in the society. Mm-hmm. You know, which one was it? And mm-hmm. if, you know, if one of them is wrong, or should we get rid of that book because the author is not credible? Uh, you know, should are they could they possibly both be wrong? I mean, at, at what point are does do those kinds of things begin to undermine our confidence mm-hmm. in the um, accuracy? of this text that we're asking people to base their lives on. Yeah. Yeah. And so these, these are all valid concerns. And, and, uh, you know, like you said, we can't just brush them under, under the table or, or try to ad hoc invalidate each argument by, you know, uh, you know, some, some form of logic. So how do we kind of reapproach this? Um, because I, I think this is a struggle for, you know, most, if not, uh, all, yeah. For Christians in this right this time, yeah, right. Well, and I and I I guess that's why I want to I want to just lay a framework for what an answer would have to look like. So that first of all, the answer would have to acknowledge glaring errors, <laughs> yeah, and not try to somehow harmonize them or rationalize them. Scientific errors, historical errors, yeah. in contradictions, uh, in, internal contradictions. Yeah, and and I uh, would more, even moral. I would even say, yeah, things that are morally uh, objectionable, at least to us. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think th- that last one is, is a little harder, um, and, it, and it's going to require a bit of a dialogue, I think, with the text. But um, at any rate, it has to at least acknowledge that. And, and so I would say whatever answer, it has to retain the whole Bible as inspired just because we're 2,000 years remote you know how how could we say oh oh those those guys that established the canon and you know collected these texts were wrong this far away from the original authoring of the texts and uh, so I don't think that there's if we can arbitrate which books or which sections of which books are inspired then we pretty much should just say the book is not inspired and move on and say that science is our guide and we're just going to go with that you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to retain it all as inspired and say, we are subject to this book. It, this book is not subject to us. It, otherwise, there's no, you know, it's, it's completely um, invalid. So I, I think a very liberal approach to Scripture is, is just nonsensical in the sense that if I can arbitrate which parts I'm going to accept, then I'm, I'm really the authority and it is not. Clearly, modernity is the authority. Mo- right. Modern humanism or whatever is the right. authority. Okay. Right. So that, does, that doesn't really meet the criteria for a, a religion. You know, it might meet the criteria for a book club. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's just, just another book. Okay, so um, we, can't, we can't ignore the, the obvious errors and glaring contradictions and other things uh, but uh, people that call themselves Christians have to in some level say that the, the, the Bible is inspired yes and it has relevancy to our faith in our lives so um, what, what does that look like talk a little bit about that yeah uh, I mean for me again if, if we set up this litmus test uh, for whatever the answer is going to be it's 
what it's going to have to demonstrate that the Bible is somehow transcendent. Um, so, you know, let's just say Genesis 1 and, uh, you know, what, what seems to indicate this six literal days and speaking into existence of things and kind of this popping into, you know, um, the existence of the various species and all that. Um, and, and now we, you know, we have mapped the human genome and we've got all this geological evidence and stuff like that. And, you know, if we were to go back and say, well, Genesis 1 is speaking of, you know, days as very long periods of time. And um, this is a poetic way of describing evolution. You know, we, we say that. We, we had better find evidence in the text that that's the case. That we can't just say, well, it can't be true from a scientific world point worldview, so let's reinterpret it. That gets back to this idea that the authority comes from science and not from the Bible. We better find evidence of divine authorship that was in the text waiting for us to discover. Yeah. So that, I mean, that that's a, a good example, I think. You know, the, the Genesis creation account, uh, most people look at that and say, well, that's not what I learned in school. You know, right. that's not, not what they teach in the science books. So... Um, if, if we're not supposed to approach uh, things in the sense that, well, well, let's just reinterpret everything we see in the Genesis account by what we see in science, what, what is the alternative or how should we approach that? Well, I, I think we have to approach it um, from in a way that is consistent with the Bible itself, uh, what the Bible says about itself. Um, and, and I think in doing that, then it retains the authority of the Bible even as we critique the Bible. You know, if there are sections of the Bible that say, you're looking at the Bible wrong, then, well, that gives permission to take a new and fresh look at the Bible. Does that make sense? Okay. So, if, you know, if the Bible were like the Quran, and, you know, the Quran says again and again, this is the word of Allah, this is not, you know, even the word of the prophet, you know, that, that there's no element of, Mo of Muhammad's personality in the words of the Quran. That's the way Muslims understand the Quran. That and because of that, you know, you can't set it on the floor and stuff like that. It's so a it's, standing miracle. It's inspiration by dictation. Exactly. And God so, dictated the words to the writer. Right. And so, you know, in in that scenario, um, that there couldn't be. There's no section of the Quran that says that previous section of the Quran is true, but needs to be understand, interpreted through this lens, you know, it, that there's nothing, there's no resources within Islam that allows for the Quran to be anything but the manifest, dictated, er, you know, in, infallible message from Allah. Yeah. So that, so that's interesting. There, there is a, it seems there's the lens that we approach uh, scripture and approach the Bible with. Um, maybe even whether we realize it or not, an inherent, inherent bias that we bring to the text. Um, so, so talk about that. If there, if there is a lens, uh, you know, I, I assume we have our own biases, but uh, what what is the way we should approach it? What is the lens that we should look at Scripture through? Um, because if it if it's just about well, we've got to compare and contrast with what whatever you know modern society has discovered and found. Um, it's then it, we're always changing our basis for how we approach the Bible, right? right? But it sounds like what you're you're saying is that there is a lens or something that's transcendent 
of both the modern uh, scientific mindset, which is ever-changing, and this kind of ancient literal perspective on the text that everything is literal. So yeah, what, what does that look like for, for people? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, first of all, what we find is, you know, in, in Genesis 1, I, I think within these passages that seem backward and regressive, we find things that are confusing or surprising. And if we are looking at the Bible with a modernist um, bias, we'll say, well, those things are confusing and surprising because these people are unsophisticated, that they are ignorant, um, that they're writing, that they're perhaps stitching together um, works or oral traditions. And so these kind of hiccups and hitches, these things that look like they're just difficult to account for in terms of just human behavior, even, you know, um, that somebody looking at, say, the book of Genesis with a modernist bias would look at these kind of odd things like two very different um, creation narratives. So if you look Genesis 1, we begin with an earth covered in water, and we finally end up with humans and everything that we have in Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. Genesis 2, what we in, we begin with uh, a planet that is land, but barren, and barren because there's no one to work the ground. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, there's this deficiency over this dry land, and um, God makes a person, well, he plants plants for the person, you know, and then he makes the person, and then... Then he makes the animals after Then the he makes the animals after, so that... It's the reverse know, of Genesis 1. Exactly. We don't know what the timeline is, but we do know that, um, that the order of creation in Genesis 2 is dirt, people, plants, animals. You know, the order of creation in Genesis 1 is water, light, you know, uh, birds and fish or whatever, you know, dry land, plants. And, and now from a modernist mindset, we could say, well, that's because they're both wrong. And um, it's because they were two competing creation myths that were part of that society by that time. And whoever was editing this didn't have uh, permission or authority or whatever to choose. So they stitched them together. That's how a modernist would look at that passage. Well, that's that's fine, uh, and I certainly couldn't disprove that right now. But there are also things in there that are that seem almost strange or out of place. For instance, um, you know, day one, there's the light and this that separates the day from the night, and then not until day four do we get sun, moon, and stars. Now. Do we really believe that the ancients, no matter how backward they were, that they thought that somehow the sun just coincided with light? <laughs> that, you know, it's like every time it's daytime, it's also that light. big ball of fire shows up in the sky too. You know, that there was that there was no causation there. Do we think that ancients really thought that, that somehow the ball of fire in the sky just coincided with daytime, that daytime was a separate thing? Do we think that that's what they thought? You know, or is there something else being taught there? Is there something else being said? You know, um, so that's kind of, that's an example of the kind of thing I'm saying is is that that when we say, well, maybe we shouldn't look at 
the book of Genesis, just Genesis 1, for instance, as a blow-by-blow, here's how God made the world, because of stuff like that. That there are clues within the text itself that suggest perhaps we aren't looking at it correctly. The text will indicate to us, and you can say this about all literature, I think, the text will indicate to, to us what kind of literature it is and how it intends to be read and interpreted. Yes, yes. Do you I think, think that's correct? Yes, yes, absolutely. But, you know, that's just an example of this idea that Genesis 1 isn't, wasn't intended to teach us scientifically in any way, you know, how, or even historically perhaps, how God created the universe. Yeah. So, um, so if that, if that's the case, then what is the role of scripture? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because I, um, I I think people hear that and they say, yeah, I, I I kind of, I kind of was figuring that out, but I don't know what to do with the Bible now. Yeah. How do I approach it or do I just throw it out? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that gets, I think that gets to why the New Testament is important, you know. Uh, and I, I think the New Testament writers, uh, ironically, as I read them, they don't seem to know that they're writing the Bible. Uh, again, you know, you read the Quran, there's no question as to whether Muhammad thought he was writing or at least wanted other people to believe that he was writing Scripture, you know. I mean, it's just constantly repeating, we have sent down our witness, we've sent down our testimony, we've appointed our uh, messenger, you know, the Quran is just replete with reminders that it is inspired. Almost nowhere in, in the Bible do you find a place that says to people remote from the immediate circumstances, you should read and follow this. I mean, even the, even the law is like, you Jews, here's what you're supposed to do, you know, and so when we take the Bible and we say, well, this is the guide for all humans for all time, and we have to read this book and, and find an ethic there and, and do it, it doesn't seem to be that that's what those, the people who are writing it or, you know, God through those people or whatever had in mind. But when we get to the New Testament, the New Testament writers seem to revere the Old Testament scriptures more than what they were writing. Well, yeah, even even when the New Testament writers are talking about scripture <laughs> or, the, or the words of God, uh, they're not referring to, to the thing that they're in the process of writing right now. Sure. They're talking about the, the Jewish, uh, Jewish uh, scriptures. Right. Well, the one exception to that would be um, in Second Peter where, where he says that uh, the writings of Paul, uh, he refers to them as scriptures. He says that you know, people twist the writings of Paul as they do the, the other, other scriptures. scriptures. So that's, that's the one caveat. But when Paul, ironically, when Paul is, uses the word scripture, he is referring to the Tanakh, you know, the law and the prophets, the Psalms. He's not referring to what he's currently writing. You know, he doesn't sit down and go, thus saith the Lord. As a matter of fact, when we get to 1 Corinthians 7, he begins to equivocate and say, I think this is what God would have you do. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, in, Genesis, in, in Galatians, he's like, I went to meet with the apostles who were apostles before I was so that I could, you know, make sure I'm not just totally screwing it up. You know, he didn't have seem to have this sense that every word that fell from his pen or from his mouth was perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, he had a view of the Torah that was a a two stage view that it was there. It had a provisional purpose. 
and it had an ultimate purpose. Mm-hmm. That's the way Paul saw the Jewish scriptures. Yeah, and so that's an interesting point. How did the New Testament authors, the people that called themselves followers of Christ, called themselves Christians even, Called themselves observant Jews. Yeah. How did they um, then uh, approach uh, what was their scripture? The the you know the Jewish scriptures. Mm-hmm. What was their lens? How did you know? How did yeah. they get into that? Yeah. I, I mean, for Paul, Paul's hermeneutic, uh, Paul's hermeneutic would never cut muster with a K. Arthur inductive study. <laughs> Who's K. Arthur? <laughs> who dad? I don't know who K. Arthur is. Oh, I, is she one of the Golden Girls? Is, but our listeners may yeah, not know. Yeah, maybe B. She is. Arthur. I don't know. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, but inductive Bible study and this idea of observation, interpretation, application—you know—that that we and and I am a big fan of that. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that Paul had a different hermeneutic, and you know, and so in Second Corinthians chapter three, he speaks of that that the Tanakh and the Torah, the Law, what everything they were given in letters right and so he's saying okay there's there's one one level is pen and ink uh you know ink on vellum um lead on stone tablets that that there is a a letter of the law and then he speaks of a spirit of the law or a spirit of scripture and that those are two layers if you will of revelation and that both layers had a purpose. So Paul would say, well, that the letter was given to show us that we're sinners. You know, the letter was given to control the spread of, of sinfulness in one particular society. And so as we go back and we read the Torah and we say, okay, this does seem to be addressed to one group of people. And even those kind of unconscionable things like go in and wipe everybody out, every man, woman, and child, are geographically limited you know, I, and while that may not salve everybody's conscience, for me, I I look at something like radical Islam that, you know, is kind of like, hey, spread this at the tip of the sword. And, you know, if people will not convert, impose the jizya tax and other things. But there are no geographic boundaries to that approach. You know, whereas in uh, the Jewish scriptures, there's like, look, you get... From the Wadi of Egypt to the River Euphrates, you get from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan, 120 miles from north to south, about 30 miles from east to west. That's yours. You know, go in, kill every man, woman, and child. Not because God didn't like those people. I mean, we're told he's, he gave them 400 years to repent. But that there's this divine judgment, which in every case is everybody. <laughs> you know, God doesn't selectively judge based on demographic that that once a society is under judgment they're creamed you know if we're against that notion then we can't talk about final judgment at the end of the age because we're saying hey that's off the books for god but god did it uh, if we believe that so all that to say paul's saying hey there was a regional provisional way of looking at the Torah. And it made sense for those people at that time. So he's contextualizing to use a, a liberal mentality. Uh, but he says that that it's not limited to that. Because if it's limited to that, then God is tribal. You know, God's just the God of the Jews. And how could there be a creator God of all things who decided that this very narrow group of people in this very small plot of land is everything he cares about? Well, that doesn't make sense. And so Paul's saying, 
Look, and by the way, Paul is in a very similar uh, milieu to ours. He's in a very rationalistic culture. He's in a pluralistic culture. He's in a global culture. Greco-Roman culture. Yes, and and so now he's like, how do we see our book? I mean, if you read Philo, who wasn't a Christian but was trying to you know reconcile his modernist thinking with his scriptures, you see a very similar approach. That, that he's saying, look, there's a deeper uh, meaning. Now, for Philo, it's harder to demonstrate that that meaning was always intended. It does seem to be that he's just taking Platonism and, and applying it. But my contention is, is that if we look closely at the Hebrew Scriptures, what we will find is, is Christ hidden there and Christ as the only way to explain how a particular narrative is constructed. Christ so, is the end of the law, Paul said. Right. Um, so that the, the Old Testament makes sense now in light of Christ. Yes. Yeah, and it applies to the Gentiles, as he would say, not just the Jews. So uh, so we're talking about lens for looking at Scripture. So even in Paul's approach, it seems that there is a narrative that we see throughout the Old Testament, mm-hmm. which is kind of the, the literal reading of what happened as told by the, the people that wrote the book. Right. But um, Paul, Paul would say uh, that there is also, you know, coming from the view of those who now know of Christ, that there is a meta-narrative throughout the Old Testament, exactly. <laughs> to use the term, yeah. you know, that overlays on top of that and brings a completely different, maybe a new perspective to, uh, you know, the Old Testament that would shed light and give us uh, a, a way of approaching approaching those texts. I want to uh, close yes. the discussion with a review of the points we've made so far. It feels like there were about three points, Nathan, that you said Perfect. that, uh, and that uh, would, you said our, our answer to these objections to the Bible would entail these things. And I think you started with, it's going to have to be an account in which the, the Bible is still inspired. Yes. Uh, another one we was we are going to take our cues from the text uh, mm-hmm. and, and let the text tell us what kind of text it is and how we are to interpret it. Yeah. And then a third one has to do with this narrative approach, I think. Yeah. Uh, right. Which is a short, uh, a short summary of that would be... Yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't even say it was a narrative approach because it's not all narrative, but I would say that it is a... Um, what would the word? It would be a mystery approach, you know. I mean, Paul talks about the mystery now revealed, and so that there is this assumption that there has been a mystery. I'll just just close it real quick with just kind of a teaser. What if when we found the Rosetta Stone? Okay, because uh, you know Egyptian hieroglyphs have been lost to antiquity from the fourth century BCE or CE, um, and. Now, for 1,400 years, nobody could read hieroglyphs. We find the Rosetta Stone. It's an account of a battle written in, what, three or four languages, one of those being Greek, one of them being Egyptian. So we use that, we translate it. Now, let's say we go back to the the pyramids, okay? And we find written on the pyramids all kinds of wacky, crazy stuff, right? But also, we find texts that talk about the discovery of a keystone that will someday recover a lost language. Mm-hmm. We just find that something throughout, prophetic scattered throughout. That just this, you know, the the stone will reveal what was unknown. 
hey, it rhymes in English, you know. But but this idea that again and again we start seeing something about a stone being discovered that will reveal a lot this lost language, you know. Mm -hmm. Breadcrumbs laid along the way. How would you confront that? How would you explain it? And so that's just kind of that's my analogy for what I see as the affirmation of the inter- of the inspiration of scripture even in light of some of the crazy stuff up on the surface from our perspective. So thanks everyone for joining us. Stay tuned for more.